Paul Sartre is a past president of the Cronulla RSL sub-branch and is currently on the General Committee and a delegate of the Southern Metropolitan District Council. He's also a Vietnam War veteran. Like many returned servicemen, Paul suffers from PTSD as a result of various incidents he was involved in during his deployment in Vietnam. But he found comfort in writing poetry and documents the experiences of the brave men he fought with in the 8th Infantry Battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment. This is his story. I left Holland and I arrived in, on, it was a Dutch migrant ship and uh, my father was actually paid a few bob to come out here. He worked for uh, the Philips Electrical Company, which is still obviously in producing electrics now. Uh, he was one of their industrial chemists, I believe. And um, when the ship arrived at Fremantle, which was the first Australian port, that was my second birthday. And we got off the ship at Circular Quay in Sydney and uh, a number of employers were there offering migrants jobs. And I've recently found out um, that Dad was offered a labourer's job in a scrap metal yard at Alexandria and the guy uh, had a fishing cottage at Bundina and uh, so he offered that to Dad uh, and he, the guy used to come over himself and use it on a weekend and we would move out of the bedrooms apparently into the large lounge room and then after he'd go home on the week, after the weekend we'd move back into the bedrooms. So we lived there for about nine months, which was good. That was my start in being on the water because we were right, you know, right on the beach at Bundina. And then from there, we moved to Elizabeth Place uh, down on Cronulla Point. And um, I lived there till I uh, went in the army. And it was just a wonderful place to be brought up on Cronulla Beach, on Cronulla Point. So I, I finally um, managed to buy my first surfboard for 10 pound. And uh, I used to just surf morning and night. As a young child, Paul found it quite easy to adapt to life in a new country and picked up the English language without too much trouble. But for his parents, it was a little more challenging. It's a big sacrifice, I think, when your family have got to move, you know, from their homeland to come to a very new place. And Dad would have spoken limited English. Um, Mum didn't speak any English for years. And, it was, and she found it a bit difficult because she stayed at home raising the family so she didn't even have the opportunity really of meeting a lot of English people. In 1966, at the age of 17, Paul joined the Army Reserves, which in those days was called the Citizens Military Forces. So I did that for about uh, nine months and then I was asked because of the war in Vietnam was escalating and our requirement out there went from one infantry battalion to two infantry battalion and then eventually three infantry battalion we were very short in manning as far as army numbers were concerned so after nine months they asked me if I would join what they call the CMF or the uh, reserve full-time exactly like being in the regular army it was a full-time job it was a special category that they brought in and, and it definitely had to do with shortage of numbers in the army itself, in a regular army troop. So I did that for two and a half years. Um, so that gave me the first three years there and then I signed on in the regular army for another three years. 
I was based at a Headquarters 5 Task Force in the Rocks area at Millers Point. I started off uh, doing admin work and um, then the Brigadier that was in charge, he got promoted to Major General and he was entitled then to a full-time driver being a, being a General. So then they asked me if I would um, become his full-time driver. I would have a lot of free time on my hands so I was offered to do a lot of courses. I was very fortunate in that regard. I did admin courses, I did even promotional exams ahead of time, I did a projectionist course, um, you know, setting up for, for conferences and all that sort of thing. I did, I, I learned to drive just about every vehicle in the army, because you know, we had a separate license for each vehicle. So I was really fortunate to be able to, and I did a law course, I've been, I was really lucky in that regards. Uh, when I decided to join the regular army, I was actually enlisted and I was one of the very first ever to be enlisted in the regular army as a corporal. In 1969, after three years in the Defence Force, Paul was told he was being transferred to Malaysia, but would need to undertake specialist training in Townsville first. I was on a train between Sydney and Townsville. When I had to change trains at Brisbane, um, I was just sitting on the, on the platform waiting and then the ne next minute I, over the PA system, I heard Corporal Zard please report to the station master's office and there was a sergeant there and he introduced himself, he said, Corporal Zard, I said yes, he said, your orders have been changed, you're not going to 1RAR anymore, he said, you're now going to 8RAR and I said, oh, where are they? And he said, they're in Inogra and I said to him, where's Inogra? He said, here, it's here in Brisbane. I said, oh, well, okay, well that sounds like a lot of fun, at least I'm in a you know, uh, a nice area of Brisbane, he said, no, the, um, that's the good news. The bad news is that in 10 days you're going to Vietnam. So that sort of took me back a bit. He said, you're the last reinforcement in our battalion. And I said, well, why, you know, you're taking me in. And he said, well, we saw your resume. You're going to be working in battalion headquarters, he said, because we've, we've noticed that you've done all these admin courses, you've done a law, a general law course. He said, you know, you've, you've done everything, covered it all bases. Uh, grabbed my pack and away we went to Inogra. It was quite interesting because then they sent me to the medical centre. I got all my injections on the one day and then the boys took me out for a few drinks and then I ended up with alcoholic poisoning. <laughs> so they sent me to the Gold Coast for a five-day rehab. So I thought that was, I thought, oh, there's a good start, isn't it? I've really impressed them now. As he prepared to experience his first war zone, Paul says he doesn't really remember being scared or worried about what he would face. No, I really didn't. Even though it was 1969 and the war had been going on and we'd been involved you know, since 62. Um, it was something that, I don't know whether it was my age or whatever, but it was something that I wasn't overly concerned about going there. You know, I mean, I wasn't excited. I suppose I was excited getting on a plane. And I, you know, um, apart from being on a military plane and that domestic flight to Sydney, I'd never been on an aircraft before. So I guess that was good. And the camaraderie with the, with the other guys, you know, uh, so when we flew out, it was quite interesting because we stopped, we stopped at Darwin, and then we stopped in Singapore. And prior, and all we were allowed to do was get off the plane in Singapore, if I recall, and we had to stay in the terminal. But we had to take our army shirts off and put like Hawaiian shirts on. So to give people the impression that Singapore wasn't 
any way involved in the war. So, you know, we had to don these wonderful, you know, <laughs> floral shirts. And then when we got back, and, and then the plane refueled, I mean, when we got back, back on the plane, you know, off, back on it with our cargo shirts, and then we, uh, then we flew, flew straight into Saigon. Paul does recall his first impression of Vietnam. It was extremely hot when we got off the plane. It was the most incredible busy airport. Apparently it was the most busiest airport in the world at the time. It had, I think, about six runways. Uh, and I, all I could see was between domestic flights, international flights, and war, and war, war planes and helicopters. It was, just, it was just an absolute buzz. The noise, you know, the heat. And they gave us lunch boxes. And we sat basically on the edge of the tarmac and uh, sat down and waited for transport then to take us to wherever. We didn't know where we were going. We just knew we were going to an Australian base, you know. Um, and it was just a hive of activity. It was unbelievable. One minute you'd see a, a small domestic plane land, the next minute you'd see a, a star lifter or some massive cargo plane, or then you'd see an F-111 or you know, an American jet fighter land, you know. And then they had these huge concrete bunkers all around um, the edge of the airport where they had all their planes underneath to stop, stop them being damaged if they had any bombings there from the North Vietnamese. Um, yeah, so the adrenaline was running, there's no doubt about that. From there we got put into trucks for the journey to, because uh, we were told, right, you're going to the Australian base, which, the, which was uh, in Nui Dat. And we also had protection behind us. I remember a couple of times we went towards villages and there was armoured personnel carriers there waiting, you know, sort of keep an eye on us and that sort of thing. Because the war was on, you could see it. The, the, the war wasn't far away, you could hear it. You, know, you, you just, you could feel it, you know. It's totally different to what, anything I'd ever seen in my life. And I'd never been, to, I'd never been out of Australia. Um, so I didn't know what to expect. That's, that was the thing. None of us knew really what to expect. You can have all the training in the world, and we had wonderful training in jungle warfare and, and you know, all other skills, but when you're in a totally different environment and you don't know what to expect, that's, that's, that can become quite a daunting thought in your mind. So we got taken into the tent, which was, and again, I put that in the poem, and it was just as basic as you get. You know, just a, a, an old metal bed with a crappy old mattress, you know, and a, just a, a, a locker and sandbags around the wall which stunk of um, mildew and uh, wooden pallets for the floor. I mean, well, you're in the jungle, you're in a war zone. I mean, what do you expect? There was no time to settle in for Paul and the other soldiers in his battalion. Within probably a day or two, we were straight into training different parts of uh, extension of jungle warfare training, showing what uh, sort of booby traps that the Viet Cong were using and, you know, uh, local issues and that sort of thing. So that went on for about 14 days. And then we started doing, apart from the admin work that I was doing in battalion headquarters, we then started doing five-day, initially five-day ambush patrols in, outside of local villages. We probably only had a maximum of 48 hours to settle in and and then it was straight into it, basically, and that just went on for the whole 12 months. There was no respite, really, for especially the, the guys in the rifle companies and that sort of thing. As the, as the 
tour went on, it then went from sort of five day, and then they were doing up to five weeks at a time on patrols and operations and, you know, and then come back for, a few, for maybe a maximum of seven to 10 days and then back out of it again. It was just, it was, it was so ongoing because uh, the war was escalating. The Americans had gone up to um, over 500,000 troops and yeah, it was, there was no, uh, the peace accord was just falling apart all the time and the war was just escalating to a point where, you know, it, it just never, it was never gonna stop. Back home in Australia, rallies opposing the war were being organised in major cities around the country. Paul says that news was hard to take. What I write about is it was a television war. People saw it every night on their TV screens and, and they saw, unfortunately, a lot of the horrific stuff. You know, villages being burnt down and, and, and children being, you know, covered in napalm and stuff. It was quite horrific. So. That, that became a, an extreme frustration for us over there, knowing that they were absolutely protesting. Because this was, and according to historians, the most divisive war Australia had ever been involved in. And they had tens of thousands of people in the streets protesting in all the major cities. Mothers were demanding the government to bring their sons home, you know, because, you know, we were, our casualties were mounting, as, as it does when the war escalates. You know, the Americans lost over 58,000 killed and their average age of that was a little bit more than us, only a matter of a month or two, it was, was less than 21 years of age. Same in Australia. So all these young blokes here, I mean, you know, when you think they lost over 58,000 killed, it's horrific and 300, 000, over 300,000 wounded. I mean, you're talking huge numbers. Boys, we're all boys. You know, this is the thing, this is where you're under such extreme pressure, you're making decisions you know, 20 years of age, and, you, and you're making decisions on the lives of their mates, you know, 20 and 21 years of age. I mean, think of the 20-year-olds these days, you know, they're down having a surf or something like that. There's no way in the world you'd expect them to make this life and death decisions. In November 1970, after 12 months on the front line and after many, many casualties, Paul and his battalion were told they were coming home. We got flown home at 2am in the morning when the airport was nice and closed. It was, uh, if I recall, it was two quarter staff and two customs officers. And the place was, well there's obviously nobody there at 2am, the airport was shut, probably just had an air traffic control and that's it. And then we were put on buses and bussed into town and put into hotels. Uh, we did march through the city, I recall. They gave us the keys to the city, we marched through there. And from there, everyone was just disbanded. You can go home now, which was, which was another thing which was, which was tragic in its own way, that you're telling, especially national servicemen, who were one minute a civilian, then they're in the military, they go to a war where they're involved in killing and wounding and all the other horrific stuff that happens in a war, and then they come home and they virtually said, right, okay, away you go, you can go back to your job now, and you, you're a waiter at the RSL Corona, away you go. That was it. It was just, it was horrific for these blokes. No, no, no professionals there to look after them, no psychologists or anything like that. They didn't, they didn't even accept the fact that these guys were suffering from mental illness. PTSD wasn't even recognised, I believe, till about till into the late 1980s. Paul says the war affected him in many ways. 
Well, it affected me terribly mentally. I had a horrific breakdown in, I think it was June 1971, and ended up in a psychiatric ward of, uh, of a military hospital for, I think, three months. I was very, very mentally ill at the time. And then I was posted, they, the, the psychiatrist, which is, a, again, this is typical of, of army, I think. The psychiatrist said that my next posting had to be family friendly, with, with new, new friends um, in a good environment. So where do they post me? They gave me a cushy posting, I must admit. They sent me to Adamstown in Newcastle as the chief clerk there for two cadet brigade, which was looking after cadets from Newcastle up to Glen Innes, right? But it was in a massive old ex-army barracks and I was the only one that lived there at night. It was quite daunting. I, I, I started having nightmares again because I'm in this huge old barracks on my own. Um, you know, you start, um, uh, you know, drinking and all this sort of thing, finding some sort of form of medication, you know. Paul admits he struggled with his mental health for many years until PTSD was formally recognised as a serious condition. That's one of the big issues. For about 20 odd years, I kept saying, to myself, and I didn't want to involve my, my, my mum and dad because they were a lot, of, they were quite elderly at the time. There was nothing wrong with me, you know, because that's what they initially kept telling me. There's nothing wrong with you, you know. Uh, until you admit that you actually do have serious, you know, mental illness or whatever, well, you, you're never going to help yourself. And I think uh, this is the wonderful thing about a sub branch where we've got all our mates together and we help one another. You know, and we can rely on one another. That's one thing about the military, you know, we had an expression in Vietnam, you know your mates, but you really do know your mates, you know, because when it hits the fan, they're there for you. Paul says he turned to poetry to work through his trauma, but only recently began sharing his work. I started writing this particular poem called The Tour, which I read out at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Service here in August of last year. It was the first time in over 50 years that I actually made the poem public. Apart from a few mates in Vietnam, uh, most people, and my wife, as I used to write her poems, wouldn't even know that I ever wrote poetry. This particular one, the, the tour, I actually started writing that shortly after my arrival in Vietnam, probably a month or so. It's like a story of, of the boys in the battalion and what was transpiring during the war. And I finished it about a month after I got home. Um, so for a poem it took a long time, but it, it firstly tells the life of the mates that I work with, you know, and the guys in the rifle companies and what they, what they had to put up with, you know, what they did. And I found it really, really good for my mental state over there, because I was under a lot of pressure and um, um, I was involved in a few instances which uh, I don't really want to go into. Um, and then I wrote, I wrote about, I think, probably another six other poems, usually over about, it usually take me, say, three to four weeks. And yeah, and I found it very stimulating for, for my brain, and it took me away from the war, because, you know, I, it, it's, it's like a form of meditation. It, you're living in the present, you're not living in the past, you know, so you're right there, and that's what you're, you're not thinking about, the horrifying things that are going around you. Paul took a break from writing for many years, but decided to pick up the pen again last year, 
He says it was Cronulla RSL sub-branch president, Corey Rinaldi, who inspired him. This is a poem I wrote, uh, it finished in November last year. It's called A Soldier's Brush with War and Peace. And this is about Corey's paintings and, you know, the fact is he was a great soldier. Your life was consumed in a world of war, the pain and suffering of what you saw. Out of this darkness could the light shine through. That could only be determined by the likes of you. Get out of the void where darkness surrounds, walls closing in and voices out loud. The change in my life I must make, away from the war that I do hate. You envisage a new balance in your life, away from the turmoil and all the strife. What can I do, you say, day after day, the skills that I have to bring into play? Remembering the time, a brush in your hand, the power of painting as a young man. Should I start all over again, knowing the peace that it will bring? The decision is made, a positive start, slowly to commence from brush to art. A choice is made of what to paint. My experiences of war, I can relate. The colours are there in black and white, the war being black and the dove being white. A painting of war and then of peace, strength of brush, a great release. The vision abound, abound, my painting alive. Hope now plentiful, I will survive. As the weeks and months produce the art, giving my life a brand new start. With darkness slowly moving away, the dove that I paint will always stay. With family and friends giving support, taking me away from the war I fought. This gift that is given to me as one, hopefully will last as it begun. With painting of many on display, enjoyed by all who make their way. Around the room where darkness be, the peace I feel and the light that I see. Forever now to enjoy my life, the brush, the art and no more strife. The dove that I paint is not alone, awaiting the final journey home. You have flown through the darkness and into the light. The brush that you hold in has won you the fight. And in all my poems, I like to finish with just some little, you know, line or something. And I've written, at the end of this, I've written, share the darkness and the light will shine through. Paul credits Cronulla RSL and the sub-branch for helping him through the hard times. I've been a member here for over 55 years. Um, I was on the board for 19 years and I was made a life member of the club. But they've always supported the sub-branch. You know, because it's how we started, isn't it? We were started, RSLs were started by veterans. And the culture in this club has always been, in my view, has been absolutely amazing. And then that, that's gone through to the sub-branch. And the sub-branch here is just, it's, it's fantastic, you know. And we have our uh, lunches and our meetings once a month and the camaraderie is what it's all about. You know, that's what I call welfare. Sitting down, having a beer, having a meal, having a chat, and helping one another, you know. And, and it's been, to me, that's been first class, and that's why I've always been so proud to be on the committee here for, you know, probably nearly 40 years now, on and off. I get the satisfaction of being able to help my mates, but at the same time, they're helping me.
Paul says it's also the support of the local community on days like Anzac Day that makes him feel proud of what he's achieved. We had nearly 10,000 here last year. Uh, so the people obviously, and they, they make the effort, you know, getting up early. I mean, I can imagine families with two and three kids getting up at 4am in the morning and be down here by 5.30 or 5 o'clock. So they're making an effort. I, 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 you know, that's appreciated by veterans, the fact that they're there to support us. It's definitely a day of reflection, uh, a day of having a few beers with the boys and, uh, you know, talking a bit of bullshit. You know, but apart from that, it's a, it, it's a good day. It's a day I think most veterans look forward to. And, of course, um, they have the march in town. Uh, you can go and march with your units through, the, through town. So, yeah, I think it's, a, it's very well supported by all sections of the community now, which, which makes you proud to be a veteran.